The Water Values Podcast, Session 86. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Well, I hope you're having a great start to your summer in the Northern Hemisphere at least. Uh, my kids are now out of school and the full range of summer activities have kicked in. We got tennis, strength and conditioning going on, some basketball camp, uh, and just a bunch of other activities. So it's actually busier now than it was during the school year. Well, we have a great show for you today, but first, as always, Please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever podcast directory you're listening on. I uh, would greatly appreciate that, so thanks very much. Well, as you're aware, I've interviewed some great people on this podcast. I'm always impressed with people whose passion for water really comes through during the interviews. And we've got one of those people today. Carlos Rubenstein joins us. Carlos is now in the private sector as a consultant in Texas, but he's got a tremendous amount of public service in the water sector under his belt. Most, re- excuse me, most recently as chairman of the Texas Water Development Board, and his enthusiasm really comes through, coupled with his knowledge. This is an interview you're going to want to check out. So with that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Carlos, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate your time today. Could you, to start off, tell us a little about yourself, your background, uh, and how you got interested in water? Sure. Um, Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Got interested in water while I was working for the Texas Water Commission, a predecessor agency to the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality that exists today doing water quality studies along the Rio Grande. Uh, subsequent to that, I became Rio Grande Water Master, dealing with the water quantity aspect of the formula, uh, and uh, continue to be heavily involved in water issues in Texas, both from a regulatory perspective at the commission and then from a water planning perspective and water funding aspect while at the board. Sure, and so what are you doing now? So now I've opened up my own consulting firm, RSA H2O, uh, with uh, two other partners. Uh, we do environmental work, but we are heavily, heavily focused on water issues. That's where our skill set is and our background. Okay, perfect. Now, let's talk a little about your, your background on the, uh, the Water Development Board for Texas. Could, could you give us a, a background on what exactly, you know, what's the purpose of that board, what's it do, and and, and kind of how, how that came to affect how you see water issues. Sure. The Texas Water Development Board was created following the drought of record for Texas in the late 1950s. It was established as a recognition that in order to secure economic vitality and sustainability in Texas, better planning and development of water strategies had to be uh, taken into account uh, statewide. Uh, originally, the board existed to develop the science and the planning uh, related to future water supplies and also to fund those. The board has continued to evolve through time. Additional funding structures and mechanisms have been developed, has been allowed to uh, be transferred over to regional water planning groups, 16 regional water planning groups. I think in that regard, Texas serves as a model to the country. It requires the 16 regional planning groups to plan on a 50-year horizon 
uh, as to what their future population growth is going to be, what their future water demands are going to look like, uh, and which decade of need that will be required. We've been doing that since 1997, uh, and again, revisiting it every five years. In late 2011-2012, in late, uh, there was a recognition that that drought pointed to the fact that while we were doing a very effective way in planning for our future water needs, what was still lacking was a new way of incentivizing the development of the new water management strategies that were going to be required under that 50-year plan. A funding mechanism for that had not yet been established. The legislature responded uh, in 2013 asking for a revamp of the state agency. Uh, it changed the governance structure uh, and also created a $2 billion program that is to be leveraged over 50 years to develop $27 billion worth of investment for the new strategies that are called for in the plan. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be selected to be chairman of that initial board uh, that was required to uh, work on redoing the uh, agency and also establishing that new fund. The, that new fund now has progressed to its second round of funding, and uh, we're seeing some very positive aspects of it incentivizing the implementation and development of those new strategies. Wow, $2 billion, that's, that's, that can fund a lot of projects. What, what, what are the projects looking like in Texas? I mean, um, obviously, from a national perspective, there's a lot of talk about, hey, we need you know, infrastructure, infrastructure into the trillions. What are the projects looking like specific to Texas? Well, I think, I think there's two aspects of it. Uh, one, there's a recognition in Texas that there is no such thing as a silver bullet when it comes to water. Uh, the water management strategies have to encompass various myriad of, of ideas from conservation, conservation and reuse being a big portion of it. We estimate that about a third of our demand can come from conservation and reuse. Uh, but you have to fund those projects uh, to be able to materialize or to see those benefits actually come to fruition. Uh, the other uh, third of the water need can come from managing water that we already have in a better way, including funding and developing the infrastructure to more efficiently move it, uh, particularly from where it is to where it isn't. And then the last third has to come from the development of new sources, brackish groundwater desalination, aquifer storage and recovery, new reservoirs, and seawater desalination. So any one of those uh, areas of a pie, per se, if we were looking at it that way, uh, are, is, what, is what the board and the state and the regional planning groups are looking at. Now, as far as how the $2 billion is used, I think that's also an innovative way of leveraging. The $2 billion is not used for direct uh, loans. It is actually used to pay for incentives to make those uh, loans materialize. So you have communities, public subdivisions, that are in need of developing water management strategies. And rather than going to the market and issuing their own bonds on their own, they can come through the state, take advantage of the state's AAA credit rating, uh, which results in a savings to them and to their ratepayers. And then the $2 billion incentives kick in. Under the statute, the board can utilize the $2 billion to, for example, offer you as a public subdivision a reduced interest rate on the loan. So on top of the fact that you're benefiting from the state's AAA credit rating, the state can still reduce that interest rate of its cost to issuance by up to 50%. Uh, 
the first two rounds of SWIFT funding have actually resulted in a reduction of around 35%. But on top of that, the board can also look at deferrals. Uh, if you are looking at implementing a new water management strategy and you're in the planning and design and acquisition aspect of it, you can still come to the board for funding under this new fund, the $2 billion. Uh, and while you're in that process, the payments and interest will be deferred, again, to incentivize the development of those projects. The last incentive is while you're looking at a project, you need to not only account for the demands that exist today, but the demands that you're going to have to meet going forward. Again, we plan on a 50-year horizon. And that may require that in many instances, it makes sense to right-size a project, build it not only to meet the demands of today, but the demands of the future as well. The board can utilize that funding to, in essence, pay for that extra capacity today with the understanding that as the nearby communities continue to grow and their demands uh, continue to materialize, they will buy back that interest from the board, from the state, uh, ensuring that the strategy has been timely implemented. And again, think of it from the public community or subdivisions um, uh, perspective. It allows them to then approach economic development with greater certainty that the water, in fact, will be there. Got it. So it sounds like it's a, the Texas Water Development Board, at least th this fund you're talking about, is a, uh, it's like a bond bank on steroids, kind of. It's a conduit to, to obtain uh, essentially cheap financing using the state's credit rating, but then there are kickers on top of it, right? Is that kind of what I'm... They are. Yeah. Yeah, you're correct. That's exactly what it does. There's one other aspect of it that I do hope, uh, uh, you know, as you stated, on steroids continues to uh, materialize, and that is the aspect that you know, communities that have water needs today uh, will tell you that their demands, in some cases, may exceed even their own bonding capacity. Um, and that may be true nationwide as well. Uh, that, is, that, is, that then calls for looking at how can private capital also come into the equation to be able to be utilized to move these strategies forward. The funding allows for that. The funding from the state can only go to public subdivisions, but to the extent that there's a strategy that is moving along, where, public, where certain discrete elements of that project are also going to be funded in a P3 or public-private partnership setting, the project will get extra credit uh, in its scoring by the board as it moves forward. So it also incentivizes the infusion of private capital into the equation. And so I think that that also is an innovative way of addressing our water needs. Yeah, that's, that certainly is. Um, I'm a little curious. I've, I've run up into situations where the public entity has, has issued debt, and you know it's typically like a utility revenue bond or waterworks revenue bond, something like that. And there are provisions uh, under the tax code that says you know, that you have to meet in order for that debt to be tax-exempt. Right, so are you able to, to hit those? Are these communities that are entering into these P3s, uh, if, you, if you have the knowledge, are they, are they uh, able to hit those, meet those tax-exempt barriers, or is some of this debt going to end up being uh, subject to tax? Do you know? I think, I don't know, but then again, the question you're asking is really going to be case-specific. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, and I think, I, think, I think at the end of the day, one of the critical questions to ask is who ultimately 
is going to end up owning the asset. And I think that that goes a long way into uh, being able to make those determinations, but they will be case by case uh, as the elements present themselves. Yeah, I, I didn't ask my question very, very succinctly, but you're 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 seeing through it real, real well. Um, Not a problem. Yeah, no. So uh, when we talk about uh, getting private capital into the mix, uh, what are what are some of the issues that go that that go around that um, with with getting the private capital in there? Well, I think you know. Water world is is an, is interesting, is it not? I mean, you for the longest time, um, folks have you know, particularly public entities, have wanted to maintain quote unquote control of their water, uh, but they're also now coming up to the realization, as we talked about earlier, that their needs exceed their own bonding capacity, and so you need to have, and you're seeing that. Uh, occur. You're seeing a paradigm shift where, okay, uh, there is a way to make this work for everyone. I think at the end of the day, you need to take into consideration as well the impacts that the development of these needed projects are going to have on the users, and particularly the fees that are going to be required. Whether you're developing your project on your own or you're going to do it under a C3, the reality is that rates are going to increase. How is it that you can prevent or more um, appropriately manage that rate shock, I think uh, will come into the determination as well. I think P3 in that regard provides greater uh, certainty because it allows you to also transfer risk. Um, and I think that, that as you progress into the development of these strategies, uh, more and more communities will see that and, and start taking that into account. Sure. And what, and, what when you're when we're talking about P3s, obviously those can take a number of different forms. Are there are there certain forms out there that you're seeing that might be more effective than others, or uh, you know, are there how are these partnerships being structured, and and what's the optimal structure in your estimation? Well, I don't. I mean, I think starting with the second part of uh, of the question, what is the optimal structure? I think again, that's going to be on a case by case basis. And what in the determination of how much risk uh, their, the community wants to transfer, how much ownership of certain elements they want to maintain, and what the impacts are going to be uh, to the to the rates that are going to be necessary to be able to pay, pay back that investment. Uh, I think I think what you're looking for is a true partnership where the community knows that it is dealing with an effective partner, that the project will be delivered, that it will be delivered without any surprises. Uh, on time and on budget, uh, and that the reliability will be there. I think the other aspect of it is uh, when you're talking about optimization of benefit is the dynamics that exist in how you bid these projects out. You know, in, in my previous career, I also served as city manager in Brownsville, and when you serve in the public sector, you recognize that when you're bidding things out, you bid for the lowest cost. The lowest cost doesn't necessarily mean that the asset will last with sustainability for for the duration of what you're intending to do under the P3 scenario, particularly where the element and the asset is going to be transferred at the end of, of, of that agreement, then you know that you're with greater certainty that you're getting that asset in an optimal condition and you're getting it because of the lifespan of the uh, 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 in the service life of the project is taken into account. 
And I think that people and folks uh, start to recognize that, they'll see the greater value there in efficiencies of scale. Yeah, so a lot of it has to do with procurement then, uh, when you're talking about getting that project. What What is the procurement um, model like in Texas? Are, do the, I, it sounds like the, the public bodies have a lot of flexibility. Well, public bodies, if they're going to fund it on their own, they obviously need to go out through a public bidding process. Uh, if you have a P3 um, negotiation, uh, the contracting is done by the private um, uh, the, the private capital folks that are actually funding the project and managing it. Uh, and so you have some inherent building capacities there as well as flexibility. Right, right. Um, let's pivot a little bit. And we talked about, or you mentioned all these different sources. I think you mentioned uh, ARS, inland desalination, and some other water sources. What what other, you know, what are the issues that, that Texas is facing in terms of maintaining and getting that diverse supply of, of water sources? You know, I particularly appreciate this question because it speaks to the vastness of Texas. <coughs> Excuse me about that. Uh, it speaks to the vastness of Texas. Um, whatever is right for one area is not going to be necessarily right for the other. So let's talk about several examples. For aquifer storage and recovery to work, you need to have first the source of the water that's going to actually go into the ASR for subsequent use, particularly during times of shortage. That could be flood flows from a river, and so you need to determine at what frequency those reliably occur so that the project will have water to store in the ASR. It could also be treating of brackish groundwater sources and storage of the treated water in ASR for subsequent distribution. And again, it's going to determine as to where you site that project. Let's talk about seawater desal. When you're talking about seawater desal, originally folks may think, well, the benefit's only at the coast. And that is not true. Anything that you do along the coast to relieve pressure upstream in a basin, if you structure it correctly, can benefit the entire basin. Uh, but you need to manage that accordingly. And that means that you can increase reliability, uh, on the basin going up while you release pressure and increase reliability and certainty and more of a drop-proof nature with seawater desal along the coast. If you want to do increased reuse, uh, that comes with some cost and then, you know, how the public views that. But it is certainly a strategy that needs to be implemented. When you talk about all of these, we're looking on the demand side of the equation. You also have to value and look at the impacts that this has to the ecology, to the health of our streams, to our bays, and to our estuaries. And the projects will succeed best when all of that is taken into account and you also realize benefits by maintaining uh, or increasing freshwater inflows, both in our streams and into our bays and estuaries. Uh, and that just speaks to the complexity of the entire issue. I agree wholeheartedly with, with what you said there. Um, you know, so when when we're looking at all these projects that Texas is undertaking, how how is that environmental balance struck? I mean, when they're when they're looking at what a, a municipality or another public body comes forward, comes for, you know, when they come forward and say, "Hey, we uh, we have this project," what kind of what kind of review is undertaken uh, in order before the the incentives are approved for that project? 
Well, the, the, there's two ways, there's two actually venues or, or processes that that goes through. There is a, a limited but necessary environmental review that is conducted at the board with a much more extensive and appropriate review during its permitting phase that is conducted by the regulatory agencies. The board is not a regulatory agency. Uh, so when you talk about the permit aspect of it, that would be the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the Corps, the EPA, uh, and, and issues like that. In Texas, we have done uh, statutorily, we've created a requirement to look at environmental flows and assess the, um, the need to maintain healthy ecosystems. Right now, it is based on unallocated surface water in our streams. And in many areas, the amount of unallocated water uh, is quite limited. And so the benefits that you can materialize, that could materialize from a reservation uh, in that respect uh, may not be as much as one would desire. But again, if you go back to developing ways of relieving pressure uh, on, the, on the streams, particularly those that are close to being overappropriated, if not already there, then you in fact can create an effective market uh, to make the water, to properly value the water and create market transactions that could lead to designations within existing water rights where the water is actually dedicated for environmental flows and the appropriate compensation takes place. I think it's going to require a myriad of all of those aspects to take place. I know that from the NGO community, there's a lot of work being done towards that effort, and I think uh, it goes hand in hand and very timely that we incorporate all aspects to it. Look, at the end of the day, there's folks in Texas that are interested in developing an effective water market. You cannot move water from a lower end use or higher end use if you have not properly valued the benefit of that water. What we have seen in other parts of the West is that when you reach that point where you properly value water, then you actually can create incentives to conserving the water. When you actually create incentives to conserving the water, then you create also incentives to allow the water to be moved from one type of use to another. And one of those very effective movements can be a transference from a current uh, consumptive use to a dedication for environmental flows. Very interesting, very interesting stuff. You know, you talked a lot in there about water rights and, uh, you know, appropriation. So, um, when a when an entity is going to go out and undertake some of these projects, I assume they they have their water rights already in order um, when the, when they're doing that. What's what's that process look like uh, in order to make sure that your you know the public body has its kind of house in order in terms of water rights when it goes to to undertake a big water project? Well, that is part of the process as well as being able you know to check off the box that it's been acquired. It certainly comes into consideration when you're in certain aspects of the funding uh, cycle of it, it definitely and absolutely does during the permitting phase. And so at any one of those, you have to, at the end of the day, be able to answer where is your source water going to be, what reliability does it have, um, and have you uh, acquired it. A permit will not be issued to advance a project if you don't have the water rights already taken care of. It doesn't mean you have to have it all done at the very beginning, but you better be targeting and, and recognize that you have to have it before you'll be able to progress going forward, either from receiving final funding or obtaining your permit as well. 
the permitting process in, in Texas, fortunately, the state recognized the need to, to do its adjudications early on. Uh, the, you know, the vast majority, if not all of the major adjudications and all of the river basins have already been completed. There are still some pockets of unallocated water that's still out there that can be called for in a permit. Uh, what you're also seeing is river authorities trying to find more efficient ways of managing their water through managing it as a system and system-wide permit applications, scalping permits where you take advantage of peak flows during excessive rainfall events. All of those are adding for certainty uh, going forward. What we haven't talked about is how we treat water differently in Texas. Uh, and at times I can serve as an impediment as well. Uh, <laughs> in Texas, surface water is owned, uh, is owned by the state and it permits its use, but groundwater is a property right. Uh, we, and we are the right of capture state, so if you own the land, you own the water, uh, and you can uh, produce it uh, and develop it uh, as you see fit. Um, so that adds a complexity to it. One of the things that I do like about our system is if you effectively develop groundwater, you are able to utilize the natural causeways for um, waterways for, for our surface water through a bed and banks permit to maintain ownership of that, of those groundwater discharges, either directly or, or wastewater derived from groundwater sources uh, after it's been used and be able to market it downstream to other users. And I think we'll see that more and more in Texas. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I know, um, you know, California kind of had a decoupled groundwater surface water system and then, and now they're, they're starting to, uh, They've implemented uh, their, the, some legislation that kind of ties groundwater back to surface water. Is, does te is Texas considering anything like that? You know, understanding full well that you're, this, this may be outside the scope of your, your area, but uh, is, is there that tie? I mean, what, what's that look like? They, well, no, not right now. You're not seeing that. A lot of folks are talking about it. I don't see it moving statutorily anytime soon. But I do think that you can still, within that, you can still find effective ways of trying to bridge it mar from a market perspective, such as what we talked about, the development of the groundwater um, and the development of, of the infrastructure. And again, you can fund those with the state programs um, as well to be able to meet demands. And to the extent that that consumptive use will develop in wastewaters derived from an original groundwater source, then why not take um, advantage of the laws that allowed you to obtain a bed and banks permit. It will be considered virgin water or new water for the stream in which you will discharge it and see if that develops some additional benefits um, into the bays. Um, you know, take that concept with what I've been talking about in the development of seawater and trying to move those benefits up basin. Uh, and I think you, from a market-based approach, you'll be able to find uh, how you are actually be able to extend those benefits to many of those users uh, along the basin as well. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that seawater desal again, because because as you were talking about that in my in my mind, I've I've floated the idea previously that maybe inland states or inland cities would participate financially in uh, seawater desal in order to kind of get some get some additional upstream rights. Uh, do you foresee anything like that in Texas's future? 
You, I'm actively talking about it. I think more and more folks are discussing it. There was a House committee meeting on natural resources that was held um, in, in April where that specific topic was addressed. I think it's something that needs to continue to be talked about, and I think you'll see that more and more leading to partnerships where you will see, for example, a community that is developing seawater diesel along the coast. Also recognize that they're already uh, acquired water rights that are not as drop proof as seawater is, obviously, uh, that they will also produce for them a potential revenue stream. Uh, and when you're talking again about the cost of water and the impacts to rates, when you develop that new heretofore not uh, having been recognized as a potential revenue stream, it can all of a sudden make the projects much more attractive. If I'm up basin and I can then acquire some of those rights, even on the lease basis, then I have benefited through it. And I do firmly believe that we will see those market conditions develop in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Um, perfect. Now, you mentioned SWIFT funding earlier. I just wanted to uh, uh, just you know make sure for the listeners out there that they know what SWIFT funding is. So could you explain what, what SWIFT funding is real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So we started our conversation with a $2 billion fund. The $2 billion fund was called for uh, in three pieces of legislation in 2013. It SWIFT stands for the State Water Implementation Fund for Texas. It is the same $2 billion. Got it. Yeah, just wanted to make sure that, that everyone knew about that. Um, so, uh, Carlos, you've been fantastic. Is there anything uh, in conclusion that you just that I haven't asked you about that you think is important for the listeners to know about water in Texas and things like that? Have, have I missed anything? I, no, well, you know, when we talk about water, we always miss something, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's a rec- I think I think whether it's here in Texas or anywhere else across the country, um, when you have a drought, everybody tries to find a solution to our water problems then, and that's a little late. If you wait for a drought to talk about future water needs, you're really talking about the next drought because you did nothing to prepare for the one you're in. Regrettably, when it starts to rain, uh, we tend to forget about the pressure that water scarcity causes for us. Um, and so we don't do the, the better thinking, better planning that we should be doing in times of plenty. Uh, and so that's the one thing I would caution against. The other thing I would also caution against is not to pit one water user group against the other. For example, sometimes you hear, well, if agriculture only changed the way it uses water, uh, then we would have more. The fact is agriculture in many aspects and in many areas has a, a tremendous job in already increasing conservation. But then we also need to recognize, I guess, two things. As human beings, we've not given up on two really bad habits. We still like to eat and we still <laughs> like to drink water, and they both require that same source. Yep. Wise words there. Wise words from Carlos Rubenstein. So, Carlos, thank you so much. You've been absolutely fantastic today. Really appreciate your time. Um, and I really learned a lot today about Texas water and the SWIFT fund and how all that works and some, some, some great issues. So Texas, Carlos, I just wanted to say thank you again. So you've been fantastic. I very much appreciate the opportunity. You bet. And for those folks who want to, uh, learn more about you and about uh, what we've talked about today, where can they go to find that information? Uh, well, they can go to our website, rsah2o.com. Uh, and uh, they'll be able to find a little bit of information about uh, what it is that we do and the partners that are involved. Terrific. Well, again, Carlos, thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon.
You got it. All right. Thanks, Carlos. Bye. You bet. That was that was fun. Well, that was my interview with Carlos Rubenstein. I'm sure you see why I indicated at the beginning he's such a great and enthusiastic and knowledgeable guy in the water industry, especially for Texas projects. Well, I've got some, uh, I've got several takeaways, uh, but I'm only going to go into one of them, and that is by far the biggest one, and that's the creative financing that Texas is using to assist the development of water projects. You know, lots of states have talked a good game about coming up with ways to improve infrastructure, to make it easier for communities to who, who are in need of infrastructure improvements to get those infrastructure. Lots of states, you know, have the like a state revolving fund. I'm sure every state has a state revolving fund. Uh, but there are also these unique mechanisms like what Texas has done with that SWIFT fund, which was voter approved, by the way. So I think that is a big issue that they've done. They've not only done come up with a great idea in terms of this creative financing, but they went out and educated their people about it, that they took $2 billion from a state rainy day fund to come out and and use that and leverage it to get more uh, water projects going because they're thinking ahead. They're looking down the road and say, we have to, if we want to keep this growth going in Texas, we have to have a mechanism to allow water projects to move forward. And so that's that's the big takeaway is that Texas was able to come up with a creative mechanism to finance water projects. And not only were they able to come up with it, they were able to explain it to their electorate in such a way that they approved it overwhelmingly. I think I looked online, I think it was uh, around a three to one uh, yay vote on creating that SWIFT fund. So would, would love to hear what interested you about the interview. You can let me know. Or you can let the world know also by posting a comment on the show notes, which can be found at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 86. You can also email me at David at the water values, tweet at me at DTM nine one nine nine three or tweet about the podcast using the hashtag water values. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the water values podcast in mind. As you go about your daily business, water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.